This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, politics of the United States. This week, the view from the top. Our exclusive interview with one of the most successful and powerful producers in network television history, Shelley Z. Ross, the former executive producer of ABC's Good Morning America and the CBS Early Show, is the queen of producing live television events and has guided news coverage of many of the most important stories of the last 20 years. Then, inside the inaugural, polyoptics practitioner and DC production powerhouse, A.J. Patil of Show Call, joins us for a sneak peek at what goes into pulling off the quadrennial spectacle on the steps of the U.S. Capitol. But first, I'm joined from our New York studios by my co-host, Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. Josh, it is great to be here with you. Adam, great to be with you. You have a good Thanksgiving with the kids? It was. It was a, it was a restful one and, and one where there was so much to be thankful for, and I got a chance to be with the folks. How about uh, New York? What's going on down there? Well, uh, we went to Boston and then the Catskills, and now we're back. And, of course, uh, this is an interesting couple of weeks of a lame duck uh, Congress uh, back in session. We have uh, in Washington this interesting play of fiscal cliff negotiations where, uh, unlike previous Previous efforts at this, you don't have the congressional negotiators uh, trooping up uh, Pennsylvania Avenue to to West Exec and uh, the Oval Office because I think they want to retain a kind of polyoptic independence, not like they are being summoned by the president. So you have uh, Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner uh, conducting negotiations on the Hill so they can do it on friendly turf. You also see CEOs being flown in or flying themselves in to lobby both Congress and the White House. And interestingly, uh, the person that you spent the summer working for tr- to try and put them, to put him into the Oval Office, Mitt Romney, uh, comes for lunch to the Oval Office this week, Adam. Yeah, something I thought was very interesting. A lot of uh, self-important White House reporters grousing about the closed-door meeting between the president and Governor Mitt Romney today. Uh, we do have some images of, of the governor uh, coming in the, the southwest entrance of the White House. More interesting to me was how he traveled to Washington on his own, no Secret Service, no one carrying the bag, no one with him, just moving through the airport like a normal human being. And I feel like what's probably most gentlemanly and best and perhaps even most appropriate in a polyoptic sense is that these two got together quietly without much fanfare and without the need to do it before cameras and to make a dramatic spectacle of it. Yeah, talking about not much fanfare, as I, as we watch this week the lighting of the uh, Christmas tree outside Rockefeller Center, the uh, windows of the storefronts uh, being adorned for the holiday season. My eye, Adam, was incredibly drawn uh, this week to page A22 of the Thursday New York Times uh, headline, Photo of Officer Giving Boots to Barefoot Man Warms Hearts Online. And for all we talk about the, the art of the photojournalist and the great equipment that they use and the lenses that they use and their art, this was a picture taken by uh, a tourist, a woman who works for the uh, for Jennifer Foster of the Penal County Sheriff's Office in Arizona, a cell phone shot of an officer, Lawrence DePrimo, usually works in the 6th Precinct in Greenwich Village where I live, uh, kneeling down with a brand new pair of Skechers boots for a homeless person. And we'll post the story on uh, polyoptics.com, but it is an incredibly moving story driven so much by the visual taken by nothing more than a cell phone. Unbelievable story. It is, and I think it's a great way to begin to introduce our first guest, uh, Shelley Ross, somebody who is perhaps the most talented storyteller I have ever met. She is a mentor, a friend. She is somebody I have learned an amazing amount from and somebody I worked for at ABC News. But Shelley, um, thank you for being here with us on Polyoptics, and I just want to credit you with teaching a generation of television journalists how to be visual storytellers and how to how to find the elements that really matter and not dig in on what you think the story ought to be 
Thank you. It's great to be here, and I want to just stir it up a little bit right off the bat, thinking about the cell phone picture that speaks a volume of, of the spirit of giving and how President Obama wants to see Mitt Romney and give him the dignity that he earned as a competitor and uh, the dignity as a human being. But talk about cell phone pictures. What was up with that Mitt Romney cell phone picture that he tweeted out where it looks like he's humping his wife in a kitchen? See, I know that you, you thought that, that was creepy. I think that's what you put as a, as yeah. a title on What's Facebook. What's up with that? See, I looked at it and I saw something different, Shelley. I thought it was just a candid moment of, you know, unguardedness in the kitchen, a uh, man and his wife, something that felt authentic. I didn't get creepy, but if you did, that means others did. And I know that to be true. Well, it might be a gender thing. Who knows, but it sure looks like he was humping her in the kitchen. <laughs> well, Josh, did you see that? And that I, was too much information for me. You know, I've seen a lot of other imagery over the past seven days of uh, of the former Republican nominee. He was seen uh, sort of in a paparazzi-style shot gassing up his SUV in Belmont, Mass. Uh, his hair askew, not the usual coiffed Governor Romney that we had been used to seeing for for a year and a half prior, we see, we saw him and Anne, I think in La Jolla, uh, hitting the gym, and we saw the Romneys at Disneyland. And uh, it's I think there was even a uh, a movie outing too. And yeah, I think there were they that that too. They may have gone to the Bond film, but but that's interesting, Adam and and Shelley. I mean, in so many years past, uh, Bob Dole '96, uh, Al Gore would be similar to this a guy without a job after the after the election but he still had to had to be there for the swearing in in his capacity mm-hmm. as vice president John McCain uh, or John Kerry goes back to the Senate John McCain goes back to the Senate in 2008 and so Mitt Romney goes back to his son's VC firm he's just an average citizen again no no official title or job whatsoever well that's the way it goes um, but I want to raise, I, I was stuck on one point that you made, that we got to see candid shots of, with hair blown, paparazzi shots. Are there really any paparazzi shots left in politics? Or I, I imagine that somebody calls up and we're going to the movies, that, that what we think could be paparazzi shots, are they not actually photo opportunities? But I'm not going to be that critical. I think the re-entry into private life is a difficult one. And I actually am more respectful than than it sounds with my snarky comments about the kitchen photo. Um, But because I do think anybody who runs for president deserves our respect. He got a lot of votes. He didn't win. People came out. There was a definite choice. This this election uh the lines were not blurry and there you go but i i I think anybody who who puts that effort and runs for president as hard as he did and he really grew as a person um i think that's that makes me patriotic every time i see an election where i see a candidate there's a reason that they stump across the country they actually do talk to people mm-hmm. in cities they wouldn't go to, in towns they probably never heard of, yep. and they listen and they grow. I love that process. I want to take our listeners uh, inside your career, Shelley. I want to help them understand who they have the privilege of hearing from today on Polyoptics here on POTUS, Sirius XM 124. Um, you have had a hell of a career as a young woman uh, gifted as a writer, and a journalist, you at a very young age uh, were an editor of a very important newspaper that uh, has just grown in our consciousness, the National Enquirer. You have written many books, um, and you have gone on as a producer in your career tackling so many different things, uh, including your time uh, at prime time and then going on as a leader. 
uh, at Good Morning America at one of the he- just heaviest and most contentious battles in network television, leading a team of people to the highest heights that that show had ever known, building this team and fighting the good fight every day and really innovating where and how stories are told, building legendary careers. Um, and then you've went on to do the same thing and help to rebuild and reboot at CBS News. Take us for a second into what it was early in your career to go and be a journalist and a storyteller. Well, to be a journalist early in my career was fairly easy. And I, the, uh, for females, the trails had been blazed. There, we all had an opportunity to enter the workforce, and it was so easy. I didn't know why because uh, journalism is perhaps the lowest paying profession in the world. So my first job at the, was at the Miami Herald for $60 a week. Hmm. And then I moved to the Pompano Sun Sentinel in Fort Lauderdale News, which was $165 a week. Moving up. And I was moving up the coastline. And at that point, uh, the National Enquirer, I was their morning paper. They kept calling me and saying, can we buy this story? And I kept asking permission if they could buy this. If, what do we do? They said, well, how do you think the rest of us survive here? We're sell- reselling our celebrity interviews and everything to the Enquirer for $300 each. <laughs> and then the National Enquirer offered me a job, and I thought I was so young. I hadn't traveled. It was like being recruited by the Navy. It, you when, were age 24 when you became the youngest mm, editor at the National right, Enquirer. Correct. But I was a reporter first. And like the Navy, it's how about if we triple your salary and send you around the world? And I thought this does sound like the Navy. And I hadn't really traveled. And uh, m- one of my first stories, let me see, June 22nd, 1976. I may be off one day, maybe June 23rd. The New York Times ran on the inside like page 22a that richard nixon had a female friend who for a certain number of years was under investigation for being a potential communist agent it was eventually determined that the allegations were unfounded that's it if you're sitting in the offices of the national Enquirer, you think Well, there's probably only one reason that the FBI was, you know, was investigating any female friend of the president to see if she was a communist spy. So I was dispatched on that day. Let me also add that when I did accept the job there, I was the only female out of 66 reporters. Wow. Because now, if they're going to triple your salary, I learned a big lesson that as your salary goes up, there are less women in the ranks. But um, I had a lot of, uh, really, my first day, I had various assistants and people, women coming out of the woodwork saying, we're rooting for you. And I went off, and uh, Months later, I returned, and we had a big front-page story. I actually found a photograph, and the story was true, that Richard Nixon had a female friend who he met, who was Chinese, Mariana Liu, who he met while he was vice president in Hong Kong first, and then re-met when he, in 1966 when he was a private citizen. And that was the FBI had placed them in hotel rooms together. And so red flags went up because people knew in 66 that he would probably run for president. I found a photograph of them from 1966, and this was 10 years later. And I really thought that I was going to come back and be famous for breaking a huge story because I also was able to confirm that this that Mariana Lou moved to the United States and visited him twice in the White House in 1970. She was on the Secret Service lists, and I thought, "Wow, I'm you know I'm going to return." And and then it was like it always is. Uh, nobody really believed it because it was in the National Enquirer. 
and it had the Enquirer then, as it has all along, um, just has a reputation that goes back. They didn't believe him about John Edwards, though, either. And exactly. They, they were ultimately right. Exactly. They don't always get it right. But um, if you're a journalist and you, you can sort of, if you're quoting FBI sources and records that you can, that we had on, you know, uh, filing under FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, and I had, I interviewed, I tracked down this woman's daughter's and people who worked with her just, and uh, she eventually came out and said, well, we were just friends. And Let me jump in for a second, yes. Shelley, because just hearing you tell this story helps tease out something that I've been talking to Josh about where you're concerned for some mm -hmm. time, which is that you were and you are a reporter's reporter, a producer's producer, long before you became, mm -hmm. you know, an executive producer, mm -hmm. a leader of people, a leader of a movement, um, which was really when I came to know you and began to follow you in your leadership and your your inspirational leadership. But uh, this is something that, that Shelley Ross, Josh, taught all of us because she did it. She did it and was successful everywhere she went. She developed sources. She went and got in the mud and found and developed in you know interviews that no one else had. And as she came up, she taught all of us how to do that and how to find the story, bring it back, and don't be worried about what your editors told you it might be. Go go find what's there and what's true. Is that fair, Shelley? I, I think that is. I am committed to that. And even in the days that I was at the Enquirer, there were stories that I tracked down that we killed because they weren't true. And I really did watch some of the most famous broadcasters, John Chancellor, and uh, Walter Cronkite report the stories. There was a story, once before I was assigned this story in Hong Kong, which turned out to be true, someone was trying to sell a bunch of letters that purported to be love letters between Richard Nixon and an Italian contessa. And all, they were in his vernacular and handwriting experts were split of whether or not it was his handwriting and I literally took copies of these letters and tracked down E. Howard Hunt who was hmm. in Eglin Air Force Base prison and and tracked down Secret Service agents who had guarded him who were retired and all over South Florida of course and nobody could verify it and nobody and I just went in and I just said like it just doesn't even smell right I can't get anybody to make any kind of connection or oh I remember nothing nothing cold and we killed the story and it turned out not to be true the letters turned out to be a hoax but I I can show you and I actually somewhere have written down sort of the the time and date that it was reported by network anchors that you think were the golden era and the voice of God era and their retractions when it three days later when they all said it had to come out that it was a hoax. Your television career uh, as Josh and I are well aware but I want our, our listeners to understand dates back to a time when Tom Snyder was uh, uh, doing NBC's Tomorrow show and you had once again, a, a, a truly exquisite first and something that was really, really hard-edged. But you jumped in and did something that no one else could do. Who was that interview with? Oh, yes. Three weeks after I arrived at my first network job, um, I had booked... It's actually the, the first day I was there, my first meeting, I took out a list thinking of all the people to, who, that Tom Snyder could interview better than anyone else. I saw no reason to have celebrities and fluff and, you know, Johnny Carson would do a better interview with Ringo Starr, right. but who could he interview? And on my hit list was Patty Hearst and this one, that one, and when I got to the my best choice, Charles Manson, everybody in the 
at the table burst out laughing at me and I said no I'm serious this was 1981 the Manson murders had happened in 1969 and Charles Manson had been locked up throw away the key he originally had a the, was given the death sentence but that was overturned in 1972 and there this was an era before the internet before anything you had to keep any stories you were interested in you had to pick up the phone and track them down you couldn't just get um, you know the local paper for San Quentin or Vacaville prison and I did discover that Charles Manson was in Vacaville prison and that because the death sentence had been overturned he it was a little-known fact that Charles Manson in 1981 was eligible for a parole hearing and I thought well if that's not news then that's the pure definition of news and everybody I said I really think that I and I can book him and I just used my old tactics of I mean if you think how would you book Charles Manson if you start writing him a letter you're just gonna have a pen pal for about three years until he gets bored with you how did you make the switch from evening and Tom Snyder and and what has become the set of shows that keep all of us company between seven and nine in the morning and what was your entree into that um, well, I, I guess I moved around the clock because I started in late night and then I went into primetime and primetime live and long form. And what I really felt when I was at primetime live, I felt like we were changing the world. We did, I worked with Sam Donaldson on five Pentagon exposes yep. and, and, but at a certain point after nine years with Primetime Live, nine glorious happy years, I and there was suddenly five datelines, 60 minutes to turning point, 2020. It was an overpopulation. Right. It also was a, a time where I just knew that Dateline had a, a jump because we're in a 24-7 news, news cycle. Everything moved faster. On primetime live, nothing holds till next Thursday night. It's well, give, a high bar. Give people bar. an idea of the, the, the year, I mean, where you're making the case that we're in a 24 by 7 news cycle. This is still it's largely pre-internet, though. I mean, people weren't using the internet or email no. at that time. No, email was just starting, and in our offices, I mean, when I was at NBC in 1989, they had just, I mean, then it was, please take this computer and this system and will it to the Smithsonian. Uh, it was really, it, it was not fast, it was just uh, workmanlike. Um, and it was really, it was just difficult. Uh, Drudge was just starting, and but nobody really was uh, clicking on Drudge 17 times a day. As well, they would not later. a lot of people, but uh, Josh King, who was in the White House at that time, you was uniquely aware of it. Yes, Absolutely. I bet you were. No, I mean, you know, it was the uh, it was late 97, uh, and I was getting ready to leave the White House. There was an intern who worked there named Monica Lewinsky. Mm -hmm. People knew knew her. She's a social person very pleasant uh i was actually getting ready to leave i'd done one more year after the re-election i'd figured out i'd try and go to hollywood after that and uh i left i think december 15th of 97 mm -hmm. and i was headed down to your old neck of the woods uh fort lauderdale florida to do some golfing and uh i come and i i wake up in my crappy hotel room because i'm going to the nick faldo golf school and I'm watching, I think, today's show because I was always NBC brand loyal. Mm -hmm. And there was this funereal music on, I think, January 18th, uh, 1998. The kind of music that I heard when Yuri Andropov died, when Chernenko died, when when uh, when Brezhnev died. So who's died? And there was this breaking story that uh, 
Michael Isikoff had, mm-hmm. had, had been spiked by uh, his Newsweek anchors, mm-hmm. and, and it appeared on Drudge. And then the morning shows took it over, didn't they? Well, that was a year before I got to the morning show, but I will back up a little bit uh, because everybody was had such heightened sensitivities about I can tell the coverage of any sex scandal and in my opinion I'll be so bold it's because many of the male anchors were looking over their own shoulders and it's all the more reason we need more females through the ranks I remember acquiring the exclusive interview with Paula Corbin Jones the first woman to accuse Clinton of sexual harassment and I had to sit before a committee of men, male executives who said, why is this a story? Why should any woman who, you know, files a lawsuit with any salacious details get to be on television? Rune Arledge still there at the time? Or? Rune was there. He wasn't a part of this meeting, but it was, all, it was his executives who reflected that. And I said, well, let me put it this way. The way she agreed, this was a competitive booking, and I had sent her a copy of a book I had written in 1988, which was Fall from Grace, The History of Sex, Scandal, and Corruption in American Politics, going back to 1702. Mm -hmm. And I sent her a copy of the book and said, read this book and see my fairness. You will not be able to tell the political party or any political bias I may have, and which was rampant around her story. It must be you know, somebody, it's a setup. And I said, take my advice and don't sit across an interview seat from Barbara, Diane, Katie, Connie, or Leslie. If you want people to believe you, I'm offering you a chair in a hot seat across from Sam Donaldson, the toughest interviewer, and if you will show the world that you're telling the truth and you're not afraid of any question lobbed at you and there's no ground rules, I think you'll make a difference. And that was my pitch, and that's the one she took. And with that, my uh, bosses at ABC couldn't argue with that. The polyoptics... that were being perceived inside the White House, Josh. Absolutely. And, you know, Adam, they they resonate to this very day, and I sort of have been reading up uh, some of Shelley's writing recently um, about the, the Petraeus affair and uh, how the echoes seem to resonate, and you pull up so many of the historical examples uh, that have uh, gone before General Petraeus, uh, General Allen. You also talk about this sort of fascinating kind of reporting that a guy like Michael Hastings is doing, this maybe one outlier reporter who isn't afraid to uh, or who doesn't allow himself to be swayed into the nest of five, four and five star generals and be drawn into their uh, their womb, as it were? And maybe he waits until Petraeus is dethroned and says, "Well, uh, he was he was taking us for a ride all along." But you have some fascinating views on. Uh, the story of Petraeus and Allen and their predecessors. And it's on her blog, which I want to mention. You can go to ShellyZRoss.com, and it takes you to a blog where uh, Shelly has been very generous in uh, her reporting and tackling important issues. Shelly, tell us about bad boy generals and the reporters who love them in the Daily Express. Right. Well, I have to say I've been just as guilty. We have to catch ourselves. Who doesn't love a four- star general it breaks my heart to see any of them fall from grace I went through the same experience when I I covered many wars and when we went into the shock and awe campaign I have to say ABC News hired some incredible generals who had retired wink wink they actually didn't privately they didn't believe in going into this war that they felt Bush Dan and Cordesman or Wolfowitz yeah. not so much Cordesman one of the most you learn that the, our military guys number one are the, these generals 
intellectually are so much smarter than any politicians. We had off-the-record briefings through the war where it was jaw-dropping for all the executive producers for on background. And the one general I'm thinking in particular just sort of like, uh, no notes, just sort of looked down at his fingers and then put his hands behind his back and paced up and down as he spoke at, on the fifth floor to all the executive producers and an encyclopedia came out of his head in a concise, organized way. And these are just our greatest minds. Our, they were strategists, there were many things. And So what's to, the flip side? No, the, the flip side is when they're not perfect. And the flip side is you, we're rooting for them. Yeah. We're at war. Our soldiers, our friends' kids, our brothers, that it really, you have to, I think we were, as a network, and, and I'm including myself, I think we were very soft on Bush, very soft on everything, very soft. We all knew that that uh, Colin Powell was choking on the yellow cake words coming out of, in, in front of the UN. Yeah, but so you're writing in such a, Unvarnished, straightforward way about Petraeus on on your blog. Now, uh, yes. Now you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and but you know, I have the same questions about the way uh, network TV and the morning shows, in particular, with maybe the slight exception of Morning Joe, uh, will totally you know whitewash everything until totally. until they you know, are are slapped in the face with irrefutable evidence. I can't agree more. It wasn't. I I feeling guilty about influence I had that was rooted in patriotism. I am telling you, and Connie Chung was the first to point this out, that it's all about don't offend the, don't cut off your booking access. Right. And that is what was happening during uh, the war in Iraq. Uh, The Bush White House didn't like the Today Show. They had long memories. They didn't like Katie Couric. And uh, we took advantage of that. But you're mindful of that. So there's a, a balance, and you know that you're going to be cut off. I went through this a lot, at being Diane Sawyer's producer. There were many big national stories where we went after the nitty-gritty hard reporting and people wouldn't talk to us because we didn't play with them. And the booking, we did all the hard reporting and the main character, let's say the Menendez brothers, you know, they weren't gonna talk to us because we laid out all the evidence against them, some which the police didn't even have yet. And Barbara, Wal- they when they wanted to give their big interview, they gave it to Barbara Walters. And I see that all the time. I see reporting and I think, okay, you know, who is this one going to get? What's that a, and that is, it's really sad. It's really sad. Shelley, one of the things that you mentioned about your early career, uh, about women being able to join the workforce as journalists, but as you moved up, where you found in that rarefied air and network executive offices where even more uh, and more men uh, were were on hand and fewer women. That was not the case in your leadership. And I want you to talk about that for a second, because what I found in working for you and working with you uh, at ABC and in your career since then was that you empowered women and had a, a great diversity of people uh, around you as you pursued the best possible team and, uh, and producing the best possible shows. Was that a conscious decision or were you always pursuing the best talent wherever that led? Well, no, that was a conscious decision. Um, I found ABC, and they admitted it themselves, was a very vanilla network when I got there. And the leadership at ABC had a uh, a diversity mission, which I was thrilled to help push. 
So a lot of uh, candidates came down the pipeline, and one candidate was better than the next, better than the next, better than the next. And uh, so there was um, great diversity. Funny thing is that at one point, um, there were a lot of, like, I noticed sleep deprivation, everybody's getting up early, a lot of things, but there were, it's, it felt like a little more histrionic than I uh, would have liked. And I had some meetings with a management coach who was also female, and she said, you have to get like some more guys on each floor and you will be surprised how the tone will change. And sure enough, just by populating a couple more men, it changed the dynamic. The workplace is a real, interesting, organic, growing, moving, emotional place. Listen, uh, you can find her, and you should, at ShellyZRoss.com, uh, The Daily Express, and you can find her on Twitter at ShellyZRoss. She is legendary, she is a friend, and she is someone who I hope will come back and talk to us at Polyoptics. You have helped almost all of us perceive and understand uh, the news in a new way. You set standards that are still being adhered to today, and I love you, and I thank you for being with us. Thank you. This is great fun. Thanks, Sean. So Joshua, as, as you have said uh, before and actually written, in my heart of hearts, having been on hiatus from this show, working so hard on a Romney victory, which never materialized, I don't have the experience needed to really address what it is to put on and be involved in a presidential inauguration. And this is something you know a lot about. Well, it's the great American pageant, uh, held every four years uh, in January, uh, most recently, although it's it's fluctuated a little bit. It's fluctuated about the, the side of the uh, U.S. Capitol, either the um, the west side or the west front or the east front. Uh, now it's the west front. Uh, the procession down Pennsylvania Avenue of several miles uh, of the inaugural parade, usually featuring uh, marching bands and other performers uh, that recall states and people that the president or president-elect has met along the way. Uh, it, ha- it features the big question about where and when and if the president and first lady will emerge from their uh, from their limousine to walk among the people down the uh, Pennsylvania Avenue usually happens sometime between the the Treasury Building and the Adams National Bank, I think, where uh, it's probably safest from a um, sightline perspective for the Secret Service. And then it has the inaugural viewing platform outside the White House, which is currently under construction in the final stages that the first family and their invited guests will watch. And then as as darkness descends on Washington on that January day, the president or president-elect and their families uh, leave that box right outside the north lawn of the White House and walk down a temporarily erected wooden platform uh, into the executive mansion, and and the next term of the administration begins. And if it's a transfer of power in this span of hours that things are happening uh, in the front of the Capitol and down Pennsylvania Avenue, the moving trucks will quietly move in on the south side of the White House and take the outgoing president and their family's belongings out. Uh, and then over at Andrews Air Force Base, a 10-minute helicopter flight away, uh, the Air Force One will fly the outgoing president uh, back to their home. And in, and when the oath of office is taken, that flight will then become no longer Air Force One, but a special air mission. But as you know, Adam, that is not the case in 2013. It indeed it is not. Uh, and our next guest, A.J. Patil, who is the co-founder and partner of Showcall, which is a production powerhouse uh, business here in Washington, D.C., uh, joins us here in studio. And, and A.J. is a political professional. He is uh, somebody who is a polyoptician uh, and he is somebody who, who practices the art of weaving theatrical performance and political message and sharing with the world uh foreign and domestic leaders on a world stage. And AJ, we're really pleased you could come in and share your experience in being involved in not only some of the the world's biggest political events, but also the inaugural. 
Well, thank you very much for having me, Adam. Uh, it's great to see you again after some time. Um, we have uh, been very, very fortunate, honored, and privileged, as, uh, as far as I'm concerned, to have been involved with uh, a number of presidential inaugurals, uh, not to mention some other world stage events that I can talk about in a minute. But what's great about the inaugurals, in, in my mind, is win-lose, well, there's no draw, but win or lose, whoever your party may be, the it's a wonderful example of democracy at work, a peaceful transition that we as a country should all celebrate. And we've been, again, honored and privileged to have supported uh, four inaugurals. Uh, and and it, it's interesting how different they are, they're, how stylistically they're different, how the leader, the incoming leader, really drives the optics of the event, and how the current... Uh, uh, situation, the economic situation, or this uh, national security environment, will also, to some degree, dictate the um, the stylistic difference between the inaugurals. That's, that's one of the things that I want our listeners here at Polyoptics to understand, and and this is what what AJ Patil and his company Showcall and his partner Blaine Candy and some of the other great people on his team uh, do is it is a uh, a whole group of events that come together. And we think of them as the inaugural. One of them is the opening ceremonies. It is can oftentimes be a concert reflecting the theme uh, laid out by the incoming leader. Talk to us about what it is to kick off the inaugural events and even be involved in some of the most important balls, whether they're official and sometimes unofficial. And, and you're right, there are a wide variety of events. Uh, we were fortunate enough in the uh, 05 inaugural to produce the uh, the opening ceremonies, and it was an incredible challenge, like any event is. Uh, you just add to that more security elements. I remember how cold it was, man. Oh, I mean, my tons God. of snow, and it was quite the challenge. But it was a it was key to kick that off, like as you said, to kick off that, that few days of events in such a way that was uh, spectacular and again, you know, emblematic of, of the leader coming in, who was, as you know, a, a humble man, a simple man. So, and that was a particular challenge in not overproducing something that because you wanted to make sure that you carried forward the way he wished uh, it to be presented. You know, Josh King, uh, production chief in the Clinton White House, liaised uh, very closely with the Joint Congressional uh, Committee on Inaugural Events. Josh, talk about uh, what it is to be inside the White House dealing with all the professionals uh, in leadership that come together to do this peaceful transfer of power, the inaugural. Well, it's there's so many parts of it, as both you and AJ know, that, that are not to be trifled with or messed with. Uh, the, the stagecraft and actually the design uh, of the west, west front of the Capitol and what's being constructed now out of lumber and carpeting and steel uh, and the, the words that are used uh, are passed down in many cases over centuries. Uh, in fact, A.J., as you rem- remember, it was the fact that uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, in administering the oath to uh, President-elect Obama, uh, there was some uh, tongue-tiedness between the two of them. He botched and, it. And that very evening, the the biggest picture from inaugural 2008 or 2009, Adam, was not what happened at West Front of the Capitol, but what happened in the diplomatic reception room was later that night. Was it the dip night. room or the map room? I don't know. I but think you're right. The- that was quite a story. I mean, AJ, you're, I mean, you are somebody who has, has moved around in diplomatic circles inside Washington. You've been involved in producing... Uh, things like the G20 summit, both here, I think you guys are working on, if you could talk about it, uh, another one coming up. Um, th- there's just a lot that you have done, but there's something that's really special, though, right, about the inaugural, because it is just, it is is, is America's pageant. Josh, I think you nailed it. It, it, it is. It, I think there's very, something very special about the inaugural because, again, it's the whole country coming together. You know, we've been uh, fortunate to have worked on a number of international summits hosted here in the U.S., the G20 being one of them. But ultimately, that's a meeting. And while the media and the international media cares about it, uh, the public doesn't gather behind NATO uh, like they do behind a president coming in. You talk about the optics for a second. You know, George W. Bush, pretty humble and simple guy. Uh, president Obama has not a great flair for uh, huge production either. In fact, Josh, I think we'd agree he's he's been very conservative and minimalist. Um, what do you expect in the in the 2013 inaugural? 
that maybe we didn't see in this amazing and just huge watershed event that was the 2009 inaugural AJ? Well, I think that while President Obama's style may be minimalistic and conservative, if I may use that word, um, with President Obama, the vast, the sheer number of people that were coming kind of created yeah. a grandiose moment, whether you liked it or not, and you had to accommodate that from a production perspective, an optics perspective. Um, I think this year what we're seeing is potentially a more subdued um, inaugural experience um, in terms of you know, being respectful of the economy. I think they're going to uh, raise less money. They've actually put some self-imposed limits, I believe, on what they can raise. And that, it's in and of itself, will drive the uh, the grandiose uh, production of the, or the lack thereof of the inaugural. AJ, show call. Uh, you know, and in my past, I worked with Hargrove uh, for various inaugurals. Um, people might be surprised. They won't be surprised that at, on Capitol Hill, there's the Joint Committee on, on the inaugural. There is the presidential inaugural committee appointed by the president or president-elect, and there's the White House talking about uh, their role that day in the very in the transition of power. But you're, you're a private sector uh, vendor. Uh, you're a partner to to these various federal agencies and, uh, and organizations put together. What exactly are you bidding on, and what are you providing to uh, make these festivities work? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because each inaugural we've done different things, dramatically different things. Um, back in the 2001 inaugural, um, because of the Florida recount, there was a very shortened time span mm. where the usual bidding process was compressed to literally nothing. And in the end, we ended up having to provide we audiovisual, which what used to be at the core of our business and still is a big part of our business. We ended up producing 35 events in 18 days from an audiovisual perspective. Fast forward to 2005, where we produced the uh, opening ceremonies for President Bush, and then go beyond that with President Obama, we had launched a security division. And there, we did more unofficial balls from an audiovisual perspective, but we actually did a lot of the perimeter security assets, um, which was, again, a, a division launch for us. And this year, to answer your question, um, we're again going after audiovisual components as well as uh, perimeter security components. Yeah, Josh was mentioning all of the the sort of ad hoc and, and really not so ad hoc uh, uh, groups that come together, one of them being the, the, J, the Joint Task Force, the Armed Forces Inaugural Committee, uh, who, which is put together by the, the Secretary of Defense. We're seeing some transition going into a, a second uh, administration. People uh, looking forward already now here on POTUS, who will be the next secretary. But there's, there is extreme continuity. I know we can't really talk about, you know, some of the important security things that show call A.J. Patil and others are involved in, but the people who work on this are, are, are not new to the game, right? I mean, you guys are professionals and work across in a very bipartisan way with the professionals who, who really put security first in these things. Absolutely. And and there's it's interesting. Everybody thinks of the presidential inaugural committee as being the governing body. But as you just mentioned, there are different bodies that handle different elements. And while the presidential inaugural committee, which is, as you know, generally made up of campaign staffers from the winning campaign, many of them are often are new, certainly new to D.C. or new to events. You know, in this case, it's a little different because it was a real act. So there's some experience you would anticipate. But the other uh, organizations, if you will, um, are very much uh, stayed and, and tried and true and have done many, many, many inaugurals. I did some, some research and I was mentioning to Josh uh, because of when Josh was involved in the White House during the Clinton administration, I was trying to look back and see you know, what kind of money on the official side was spent. And Josh, I know that, that you had vision all this, but you know, even as it was growing, you guys were very studious about the money that got spent. It was very consistent with what had happened before uh, with Bush 41 and, uh, and, and Bush 43, from what we can tell, really took up the Clinton lead in terms of what the official spend was. Well, I think that's right. As, I, as we, we were in our discussion, there are these set pieces that uh, are only going to go up. They should, they should only go up by the rate of inflation. And it's, uh, it, it are these, it's these add-on components that often accompany a new president coming into town and all of the constituents that they want to uh, honor and host and celebrate with that drives up the cost of these uh, new president inaugurations, whereas, as AJ said, uh, in the second time around, presidents generally ramp back. You saw that even in Chicago on election night when instead of using an outdoor venue like Grant Park, they used McCormick Place. But 
if uh, if AJ will indulge me, and and we, we we can edit this out if it if it does scrape at all too close to um, operational tactics, you know this this question sort of go, goes to our old friend Adam uh, Jeremy Gaines, uh, who I worked with at the White House mm-hmm. for so many years, and and we always have these sort of questions like I wonder how, and obviously AJ, as you've talked about the new security. Um, division that you've put in place uh, and Adam and I and, and people like Jeremy are, have been used to finding venues that would host a G7 or a G8 or a G20 uh, or an inaugural and or a convention and you do need to secure perimeters these days. You need to create clean zones where we know that they, people can't bring bombs in or, uh, or uh, per- penetrate with a vehicle. Uh, that you need sort of uh, new kinds of fencing and perimeters that go well above human height so that people can't scale these walls even in a major protest. And I'm wondering, as you tend to uh, provide your services to events around the world, is there one vast warehouse where all these sort of uh, uh, city-sized perimeter fencing is housed and then you have to ship it from Seoul, Korea to Seattle, Washington? Yes, a warehouse happens to be in Germantown, Maryland. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, that's where our offices are, where one of our warehouses are, rather. Um, you know, nobody has the kinds of quantities in one location, and I can say that pretty comfortably. No one company has got it all. Everybody has to reach out and and go to companies that have, and kind of piecemeal it together. I mean, the amount of bike rack for the inaugural is in measured in miles, not in feet. Um, anti-scaling fence happens to be a very unique item that is tough to find. And I think scaling fence. Anti scaling and it's literally the inventory in the US is wiped out for an event like this. An event like this, and I can't speak to this because it's it's part of the public domain, is called an NSSE which is a nationally specially secured event. That designation is a Secret Service designation. That means they're not just protecting their protectee, they're protecting the safety or ensuring the safety of everyone attending, which is a mammoth undertaking. And that's what leads to all the road closures and the the massive anti-scaling fence, the concrete barriers, et cetera. See, I I love the fact that Josh King, that he knows has every nuance at the tip of, he didn't have the name anti-scaling fence, but but as 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 a guy who loves the imagery and knows what the optics are, those things can be an eyesore, Josh. They can, and you have to. And look, a whole part of my uh, mo at the White House, and that you that campaigns have always picked up on, was the anti-ballistic uh, uh, material yeah. that is used on the stage. <clears throat> it's usually ugly. It's either steel or 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 a resin that can uh, hold back automatic gunfire. But man, is it ugly on a stage? And you have to figure out how to decorate it. And if you have to decorate it, why not use it to get the me- get the candidate's message out? Indeed. You know, um, one last thing that I want to point out for our audience here in Polyoptics about A.J. Patel and about uh, his partner, uh, Blaine Candy, and their their company, Showcall, is that when we talk about here on POTUS, the theater of American politics, the the theatrical elements that go into crafting a message and, and, and broadcasting it the world over, you won't be surprised to find out that A.J. Batil got some of his professional background as a tour manager for who? The B-52s on the road. <laughs> I mean, you, you came by this experience the hard way, didn't you? I did. I did. My career actually started in rock and roll. But what strikes me is when you get down to it, events are events, and they have commonalities. And whether it's a rock star or a world leader, there's a lot of similar things there. There's just maybe more guys with earpieces than uh, one with the other. Agree, Josh? Absolutely. Well, listen, a, a great episode. We're lucky to have got to you early to, to bring sort of our audience behind the curtain of the preparations for this inaugural celebration. Josh, another great episode of Polyoptics. Absolutely. AJ, thanks for joining us. And uh, Adam, always wonderful to hang around and talk about these issues and anti-scaling fence. I've got some in my garage. <laughs> we'll see you all next week. Thank you both. <laughs>